So we're continuing our series on the priority of heaven over earth. And uh, we've been going through Matthew chapter 6, and we've been looking at uh, verses 19 to 24. And uh, we've been just looking really at this, at a series of um, competing opposites. That's what we've been looking at really. We've been looking at two different kinds of treasure, one of heaven and one of earth, Two different kinds of eyes, some full of light, some full of darkness. And today we're going to be looking at two kinds of masters. Uh, so we're looking at verse 24 today. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, and it says this. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And just in case you missed it, you cannot serve both God and money. And uh, up until this point, I think, uh, in the series, so we looked at two kinds of treasure, two kinds of eyes. And you might have thought, well, there's some wriggle room on that. Maybe I could have a bit of treasure here and a bit of treasure there. Or maybe I could have a bit of light here, a bit of darkness there. Perhaps mix it up, maybe some areas of grey, that's okay. <laughs> you might have thought that there was some kind of choice. But when you get to this verse, you realise that there wasn't a choice at all. And there isn't a choice at all. There never has been. And Jesus completely nails it down. He said, guys, listen, it's about God or it's about money. It's one or the other. You can't have both. There's no middle ground. Which one is your master? One of them is your master. Who are you going to choose? And uh, this reminds me of Elijah's uh, battle with the prophets of Baal. If you remember from the Old Testament in 1 Kings, the people of God are being distracted by Baal who is effectively the god of sex and the god of this world. And uh, it was a sexual cult, and that's what was distracting the people of God. And uh, uh, Elijah decides to challenge them by means of a competition. He said, okay, I'll take on the prophets of Baal, and we're going to prove once and for all who's really God. It's either this disgusting-looking idol, which if you've seen it, it is completely repulsive to look at, or it's God. There's no middle ground. And so Elijah says, he went went before the people, it says, and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And that's kind of what today is about, actually. It is that starker choice. No compromise. That's what Jesus says. There's no compromise. And I've got to say, I found this quite an uncomfortable verse to study because it's interrogated my own heart. And I think it's going to do that for you today as well. This is, there is an interrogation about this verse because Jesus doesn't give us any wriggle room. He says there's no compromise possible. There is no fence to sit on. There's no other option. You're either in the kingdom of God, seeking his kingdom first, or you're in the kingdom of darkness. There is no middle ground. Jesus says you just can't serve two masters. You can't serve them both. And this is intentionally a slave metaphor. It's about ownership. You know, you could feasibly work for two employers. My wife actually does. She's a teacher. 
in the daytime and she works for the church the rest of the week. Two days in school, three days plus four days, five days and evenings for the church. (laughs) It's not ideal, but it's possible. There's no real conflict. There's no competing interests in the same way. But you can't be owned, Jesus says, by two masters. It's a question of ownership. It's not really about money. It's not just about money anyway. Uh, it's about who is your master, who owns you, who has your full allegiance. Is it God or is it money? Well, money, well, that's how the NIV translates the word. Actually, the word is mammon. Is it God or is it mammon? And mammon is wealth personified. It's wealth as a deity, as an object of worship. It's a belief system. We would probably use the word materialism. It's a belief system. And uh, the Amplified Version helpfully uses lots of words to describe mammon. It calls it money, possessions, fame, status, or whatever is valued more than the Lord. Mammon. Mammon is the worldly system which is in direct conflict with loyalty to God. Is it God or is it mammon? And if we were to draw back the curtain and expose what's behind the worldly system, you'd find that there is another kind of slavery, the kind of slavery which involves the God of this world, Satan himself. It's God or it's mammon. And this was the same choice that was given to Jesus in the temptations. Jesus says, pointing to all of the worldly systems, all of the temptations, all of the opulence, all of the wonder even of the worldly system, and he said, choose. Which one do you want? If you bow down and worship me, you can have it. That was the choice that Jesus was given in the temptations. The choice is still there for us today. That choice is still there for us today, and it's as stark as ever it's been. You either worship God or you worship Satan. (laughs) It's either darkness or it's light. It's life or it's death. It's heaven or it's hell. There is no other option. There is no middle ground, just in case you were wondering. (coughs) So why do you waver between two opinions? Choose you this day whom you will serve. (laughs) Elijah's exhortation still applies. You know, as I've thought about this, I like to do nice talks. I encourage people in the nice. I thought, is there some way I can lighten this for people? No. There is no way that I can lighten this for you. I can't remove the fear from you. I can't embroider it in any sense. It is black and white. It's God or it's the devil. Which one is your master? I can't lighten it because the unavoidable conclusion is that anyone who compromises has already given their allegiance to mammon. Because God can only be served with wholehearted, wholehearted and complete devotion because he is God. So Moses writes in Exodus, he says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. (laughs) He's jealous for you. We love to sing that song. He is jealous for you. Loves like a whatever thingy. (laughs) 
It's kind of this lilting, beautiful, lovely song. And we love to sing it and get warm feelings. But this is where it comes from. He is jealous for you. Don't you dare mess with anybody else. He is a jealous God. This is a powerful, wonderful, but truly terrifying fact that we have a jealous God. And he will not be shared. (laughs) And he will not share you. He gave himself for you, for you. He loves you. He will not share that affection with anybody else. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of darkness. Choose. Which one? Which one for you? Who is your master? Who do you serve? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And I've got to say, I have battled with this. This week, because I found that this has brought something of the fear of God into my life. Just considering my own heart, just considering my own priorities. And I've got to say, I haven't got it all sewn up yet. I haven't got this perfect. And I felt like God has put his finger on some things in my life. And he says, that is an idol that needs to go. That is something that's not right. I don't want you doing that anymore. I don't want you prioritizing that anymore. So why should it just be me? (laughs) I want to ask the Holy Spirit to come and search our hearts. And if we don't get through the rest of the talk, that's fine by me. But I want us to make that decision. Who will we serve? Who are we serving? God, will you interrogate my heart? Why don't you just do that right where you are? We don't wait for the response at the end, you see. We, we want to go where God's going now. And the Holy Spirit's on this right now. So just let him search your heart and say, Lord, who is it that I'm serving really? Is there anything that you need me to put aside? Is there something that needs to die for me? Why don't you just come before God, come before his holy presence? No compromise. No shades of grey, Jesus. Search me. Search me. Try my heart today. If there's any wicked way in me, if there's any compromise in me, Lord, I want to be wholehearted and sold out for you. Will you send your holy fire and burn in me anything that is contrary to you? What I've come in with today, Lord Jesus, even that, Is he putting his finger on anything? That's got to go. That's got to stop. That's no longer a priority to you. Why don't you just repent right now and say, Lord, have that. Have it. Trust him to work it through with you, but just give it to him right now. Lord, we renounce, let's just say this together. We renounce the claim of any other master. We repent, Lord Jesus, for serving any other master. And we recommit ourselves wholeheartedly to you. And we declare over ourselves that only you are God. Only you are Lord. You are 
my master. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, will you just come and fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you just come and receive the sacrifice of a broken heart? Lord Jesus, it says that you fire came out and consumed the sacrifice on the altar. Lord, would you send your fire amongst us? Lord, would you burn us so that we burn for you? Oh, Jesus, forgive us for lukewarmness. Forgive us even for coldness. Lord, would you cause us to burn again for you, for your name's sake, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and everything else just pales into complete insignificance. We ask that for your sake, Lord Jesus, for the, na- for the sake of your name, for the honor of your name. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Praise your holy name. There's something very important about public confession. And in times of revival, it was often marked by times of embarrassingly public confession. So I'm not going to make you do that. But I want you to acknowledge something publicly before God. If God put his finger on something in your life right then, just put your hand up and own up to it now. And say, Lord, I've dealt with this and I'm publicly confessing it. And it says in the Bible, doesn't it, that if you confess your sins, and that's what we're doing right now when you lift your hand up, you're making a public confession. If we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in jesus name amen so receive forgiveness receive healing and go for complete and utter dedication for jesus amen good we got that out of the way but what does this mean for us what does this mean about money and material things, this this competing interest, it's either God or it's mammon. What does it mean for us? What should we do about our money and material things? Should we sell up, perhaps? Uh, give everything away? Uh, take a vow of poverty to secure our salvation, as some have done? Well, sometimes drastic action is required. See, I, t- I can't lighten anything for you today. I, I've tried. But sometimes, you know, drastic action is required. You've only got to look at the story of the rich young ruler to see that. So in Matthew 19, you can read about the rich young ruler. Uh, but what seems to have happened there is that the rich young ruler had grown such an attachment to his money and possessions that Jesus says, listen, the only hope of salvation for you is to give it all away. I wonder how you'd feel if Jesus said that to you. <coughs> the only hope for you is you've got to get rid of that. And obviously in this instance, Jesus had discerned uh, a competing interest in the young man, an idol that had taken the place of God, despite his apparent desire to please God by coming to him saying, how can I obey the commandments? I've done all of them so well. He came over so religious and so spiritual, you'd have thought he was the best Christian in the place. 
And Jesus says, one thing you lack. You've got an idol in your life. And if you don't get rid of that idol, then you can't have salvation. (laughs) You've got to get rid of that idol. You've got to put it to death. You've got to get it out. I mean, what Jesus was describing was basic repentance. He was describing uh, repentance. And sometimes, you know, drastic action is needed in as in other forms of repentance. It may not be money and possessions for you. That There may be other things for you. There may be destructive lifestyle that you just need to deal with and leave it behind and not go back there again. Or not moving in the same circle of friends because it's not good for you. That company is corrupting you. It's radical as such as cutting up your credit card because actually debt is becoming an increasing problem and you can't stop spending. Or it may be throwing away your smartphone or your computer even because you know that that is taking you down a path that is so unhelpful and destructive, it's becoming an idol to you. I know a young man who was struggling with pornography and he felt one day that the only option for him was to go out and throw his computer in the fish pond. So he went out of his house and he was absolutely sincere in his repentance. He says, God, I'm doing this for you. He threw his computer into the fish pond. And when he told me, I said to him, oh, what kind of laptop was it? (laughs) But sometimes radical steps are needed. Sometimes drastic action needs to be taken if we're serious about dealing with our idols. But you see, money itself is not the problem. Money itself isn't the problem. Money is actually morally neutral. But it's about our relationship with money and what we do with it that counts. And so Paul says in that oft misquoted verse, the love of money is a root of all evil. So we can have money and possessions. We just need to be careful that we don't fall in love with them and make them our idols. So do you think God could trust you with money and wealth? Do you think he could? Or would you fall in love with them? Because, you see, it's not wrong to be rich. There's nothing in the Bible that says that it's wrong to be rich, to be wealthy. Some of the greatest people that ever lived were rich and they were believers. I mean, just to look at the Bible, I could tell you about other examples outside of the Bible, even of great men and women of God that have been used powerfully or incredibly wealthy. But there's Abraham, for example. He was incredibly rich. The Hittites in Genesis 23 called him a mighty prince. Jacob, Abraham's son, became so rich in Genesis 26 that the king of the Philistines said, please, will you leave our country because his wealth was destabilizing their economy. How rich is that? It was said of Job in chapter 1 of his book that he was the greatest, most powerful man amongst all the people of the East. Considerable wealth, which then God gives back to him even more at the end of the book. And then King David, we know King David was incredibly wealthy, but not nearly as wealthy as King Solomon who came after him, uh, who exceeded him in all fame and wealth. In 1 Kings 10.23, King Solomon, it says, was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the whole world. 
Wow. And in fact, because of this history in the Hebrew mind, the mind that Jesus was speaking to, considered wealth as a sign of God's favor. And so Moses has to remind the people in Deuteronomy 8 that remember, it's God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. (laughs) It's God who gives you that ability. It's an ability that he's given you. Did you know that? Did you know that part of the blessing of the people of God for the earth is to increase, to multiply, and to fill the earth, bringing prosperity for everyone? You know, we're meant to make a positive difference, an impact on the world. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you need to be poor. (laughs) But it's what you do with it and how you live your life that counts. If you can be trusted with wealth, and that's the key question, God might actually decide to give it to you. But what you do with it determines whether you will become its slave and it your idol. Because mammon has a way of stealing our hearts from God. I've already told you about King Solomon. He was the richest man In the whole world, because of God's blessing. And this is what he says. He says, this is how you get around it, people. Honor God with your wealth. Honor God with your wealth. And that word wealth is literally mammon. How cool is that? Honor God with that false false idol. I can't get my head around that. Honor him with it. Don't worship it. Give it to God. Give your wealth to God. Give it to him as an expression of worship. Seek God first, everything else next. Lay it down on the altar. Make it clear who's boss. Because you see, wealth must be our servant and not our master. And this will be seen in the way that we live our lives and what we do with our money. Put it this way. Rather than working for money, I mean, people often say that, why do you work? Well, I work for money. That makes money your boss. (laughs) Do you realize that? So rather than working for money, we must make sure that money works for us. So how do we do that? So I want to give you a couple of thoughts and principles. And I am not a financial advisor. I'm not qualified or regulated by the IFA. So before I go any further, I just need to say that I'm not qualified in any of these things. These are basic theological principles. Speak to Trevor. He knows more than me about this kind of thing. But making money work for you. How do we make money? Our servant, not our master. How do we make it work for us? Well, there's two suggestions. I've only got two but there are many more that were too mischievous to put in. But here's the first one, and that is generosity. That's the first way that we make money work for us. Because you see, the antidote, the antidote to greed is not making ourselves poor, poverty, but generosity. The antidote to greed is not poverty, but generosity. So hold the things that you've been given lightly. Did you know you've been given them? God has given you these things for your enjoyment. Wow, isn't he good? But give readily and freely. Lend your tools, your garden equipment and your house to others. Even without giving it back. 
I express my pain publicly. I used to have more tools than I have, more books than I have, but now they've gone to another place. (laughs) Be generous. Don't hold on to things. Don't be, oh, you know, can you get, when are you going to give it back? When? Exactly. I'm going to come around and get it. Just be free with what you have. Be generous with yourself. Have an open home. Make it a place that people want to visit. Be hospitable even to those that you don't naturally get on with. You know, that word hospitality is actually from the root word hospital. Isn't that interesting that if we're hospitable? You're talking about people that are broken, that are damaged. Be hospitable. Be given to hospitality means having those kinds of people around you and you caring for them. One of the best examples of hospitality in the Bible is actually in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look at that man. He was an enemy, and yet he was incredibly wealthy. And look how he used his wealth to help his enemy to be restored and healed. That's the kind of thing. That's generosity. That's generosity in hospitality. When we when we give, we make money our servant, and we demonstrate to God our allegiance to him, giving in secret where only he sees. And we're saying in that moment, money, you don't own me. I own you. And despite my needs, I'm giving you somewhere else because it's God who looks after me, not you. It's defiance in the face of the temptation. And we give expecting nothing back but as acts of faith and obedience. You know, over the years, there's been a lot of teaching around the verse, give and it will be given back to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over, as if that's why you should give. You know, if you give, you invest in my bank account usually, God's going to bless you. I've even heard it on TV and all that kind of thing. But God never promises to return our money with interest. Never. He never promises that. Given it will be given back to you is not necessarily about money at all. Although sometimes it seems like he does. But if he does, it's a sign of his grace and he's under no obligation whatsoever. Because, you see, God has already given way beyond anything we deserve by sending his son. (laughs) He's already outgiven us. So why would money make any difference? So don't let this kind of motivation either influence or stumble you, because it will. You can say, oh, but I've given so much, God, and you've never given back to me. And you can get so disillusioned, and you forget that he's already given his life. Oh, right. How much is that worth? Hmm. Problem. If you have that kind of motivation, it'll undermine the very purpose of giving to store up treasure in heaven. We've done this a couple of weeks ago. Storing up treasure in heaven is about unconditional acts of generosity. 
And I don't mean that God doesn't generously supply for our needs. After all, Jesus goes on to say in a few verses, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you, meaning that if we make the kingdom and obeying him our priority, that the provision of heaven will inevitably be attracted to us. I mean, time after time, we've stepped out, even as a church, haven't we? And we've seen God's provision come in. With no stress, with no struggle, God just provides for us time and time again. We make the kingdom of God his priority. He provides for us. We're on mission for him. We get expenses in the expense account of heaven. Really believe that. But the key to this is who is your master? And the answer is demonstrated through generosity and giving. Through these things, you make your money work for you and ensure that it doesn't own you. So do, I just want to encourage you, do a bit of a review of, of yourself. Especially coming up to Christmas, watch yourself. Watch why you're doing certain things. Watch your motives. Watch the materialism that you might be inadvertently encouraging. Do a bit of a review of yourself and say, what random acts of generosity have I done this year? And what could I do next year? Because it could be the person in front of you, the person in the shopping queue, the person in the street that you bump into, the neighbor that you hear about. Be generous with your whole life. Be generous. Make that a a quality, a value of your life. And the second way you can make money work for you is through investment. This is where it gets really daring. You see, mammon or wealth is not just about money in the bank or the salary we earn. But it's about everything that we own. And certainly that would have been the Hebrew understanding. So when they tithed there, man, they tithed absolutely everything they owned. They didn't just look at their salary every month. It was my whole wealth. So that's challenging, isn't it? When we say that tithing isn't for now, we're meant to be giving more than that. Yeah? Yeah, I'm trying to work that one out myself. But making your money work for you is about using everything you have well so that it grows and even multiplies. And the first thing is about being good stewards of what we have. So, for example, looking after your house, uh, servicing your car, buying things well. Shop around, make sure you get the best price. And if you can't find it, ask Trevor. He knows where it's even cheaper. And secondly... (laughs) It's about adding to what we have so that it grows in value. So firstly, it's about uh, good stewardship. Secondly, it's about adding to what we have so that it grows in value. And just in case you think I'm going into financial advice here and not the Bible, the example that I want to give you is the parable of the talents. You know, I've often heard the parable of the talents spiritualized, and, but actually it's about investing well in property. Investing in the property that the master has given them. There's the clue. The master gives property to the slaves and making a good return on that property and growing in influence. Read the story again through that lens. I won't go through it now. But that's what Jesus praises in Matthew 25. It's about making good decisions and having a good investment and growing in influence and authority. And uh, this is what really caught my attention when I read it again recently was the reward that the master gives them 
the ones who invested well, is more responsibility and more authority. That's what the proper use of wealth is. More responsibility and more authority. So when he comes back, it's not just over his property now, but he's gone, as Luke tells us, to get a kingdom. Now, that's another subject. But he comes back, and now he has authority over many kingdoms, the master does, because he's won that, you see. And so when he comes back and he rewards his slaves, he says, right, because you've been faithful in a little, I'm going to give you authority over kingdoms, not just my house, but other kingdoms. And that's the whole point of the story. That's what excites Jesus, is about their investment means that they take responsibility and grow in authority and they use their wealth to change the world. Have a think about that. Because it's not primarily in kingdom terms. Sorry, I've just lost my place. I got carried away. So we all have a responsibility for good stewardship, for for that which the master has given us. And that includes all the things that you've heard talked about in the parable of the talents, our talents and all that kind of thing as well. Uh, But it's more than that. He expects us to invest and grow our wealth, what we have. But our motivation for this is different from that of the world. So in kingdom terms, investment is not primarily about personal gain. Although there may be some of that, um, and it's right, of course, to provide for our families and ourselves. But more than that, it's using our wealth for the good of others, for our communities, for our cities, even our nation. Do you know, I love the story I've been hearing um, of Bethel Church. I mean, you've probably heard a lot about them. But I love the fact that they've started tithing to their local authority. And through it, they've gained authority uh, for policy, and they 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 have they have influence in their city like you wouldn't believe, because they've started committing like that with no strings attached. They said, "We just want to give this to you to honour you for the work that you do." How about that? Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love us to be able to do that? Um, my background is in business, as as you know, and uh, I worked for some very wealthy individuals and some incredibly wealthy companies. And the disillusioning thing I found about that was that the companies seemed to have so much more influence in the city than we ever did as the church because of their wealth. And they could bring phenomenal change to a city. As you know, some of you all know I was involved in uh, remediating land and restoring buildings. Whole areas of the jewellery quarter have been restored because of the wealth of these companies. Isn't that wonderful? And that's a godly kingdom principle. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for uh, businesses to do that. I think it is a sign of God's grace to the, to the world. Um, but A lot of good has been done because of wealth, and a lot of bad has been done as well. But there's been a lot of good done. I just love reading the stories of the Cadbury family and people like that, the Quakers and and all the people who created whole towns, whole systems of social services, if you like, that we now model our communities on because of what Cadbury did and others who set up the National Health Service. I worked for the Health Authority for a while, and the thing that struck me is hospital after hospital building was owned by Christian charities, and then it got nationalized, and then we lost something, I think. It became a right rather than a gift. 
And there's some interesting things going on in Sully Hall at the moment. Um, many of you will know that most of the heart of Sully Hall has been brought over by a company that's owned by a believer. And I'm very intrigued with that. We are the beneficiaries of that in this building. God's up to something. And so, anyway, lost it again. Ah, Wealth needs to be cultivated, but for the right reasons. It needs to give us influence and greater responsibility for our families, for our workplaces, for towns and cities, even for nations, to make a difference, to alleviate suffering and poverty, to change our culture, to make our cities great places to live again. Um, and I'm just going to be honest with you, this is reasonably new thinking for me. I come from a background where money's bad. You know, everything about money is bad. In fact, if you're poor, it's more spiritual. That is honestly my kind of background and thinking previously. So this is a shift in my thinking. But this is the thing, that kingdom investment is not purely a spiritual thing. That's the revelation for me. It's not just a spiritual thing. Uh, we're called to affect the world around us. We're called to bring change to the world around us. That's kingdom theology. Now, we know this verse really well. It's one of our... Um, our vision verses in Isaiah 61. We know this so well. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on us because he has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. We love that. We love that verse. We love all the verses that go with it. They're all about healing and setting captives free and prisoners. But just over the summer, I felt God draw me to the second part of the uh, passage. And I started to look at... Uh, what these spirit-anointed people that are described in the beginning actually do. Because that's where it goes on. In verse 4, it says that this is what they do. Those that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on, uh, because the Lord's anointed him, this is what they do. Verse 4, it says this. He says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. How much do we need that in our society? That's what spirit-appointed people do. Sorry, this is new revelation to me. Maybe you all knew this, but this is ground-shakingly new for me. I feel like there's a burden on us. If we are serious about the first part of the passage, we need to learn how to do the next part of the passage. And I don't know how to do it. I'm just sharing it with you. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to use our wealth and our influence for. Rebuild ancient ruins. Restore places devastated. It's not just people, it's places. Because people live in places. Ruined cities. I don't know if you knew that that was part of our calling as spirit-filled people. The job that you do. That's why you're there. That's why you're a teacher. That's why you're in the health service. That's part of what you're doing here. You're rebuilding cities and broken walls. That's what we're called to do. That's what it means to advance the kingdom, to change a culture, to change a town, to change a city, to change a nation. That's what Wesley was up to. He says, I want to change the nation. (laughs) Read his story. That spirit needs to be raised up in us again. We've got too apologetic and too small for our own good in our thinking. 
we're going to need some wealth to do this. We're going to need to learn how to invest what we have and who we are. So who is your master? That's what it all comes back to. So if you've got a big God, you can do big things. Who is your master? If you look at my bank balance, I haven't got a chance of doing any of this. Who is your master? Is it God or is it mammon? If it's God, then he owns everything anyway. Who is your master? And would others know this from how you live your life and what you do with your money? And this is the serious question I felt God prompt me to ask today. um, Could he trust you with more? (laughs) Could he trust you with more wealth? Because I I believe that God wants to raise up some wealthy people at Jubilee. You look around the rooms, just trying to work out which one it is. (laughs) I really believe that God wants to raise up some wealthy believers in these days because there's no other way that we're going to change our society to have the kind of influence. And our prayer meetings that go behind that What an amazing partnership. Could God trust you with more? That's a serious question because there is a serious temptation when you have money. Could he trust you with it? I'd like to pray for some people. Um, I'd like to pray for us that we would be wealthy people and generous people. But it's about making money your servant, not your master. There's no competition. There's no compromise. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long are you going to waver? If it's God, then it's God. If it's Baal, then it's Baal. Just don't do the one in between. Do you know it says that lukewarmness describes it in Revelation. It says, I will spew you out of my mouth. Literally, lukewarmness makes God sick. He would rather you be cold than lukewarm. Rather, you were hot and on fire. We're called to change the world. We're called to change the world as believers. It seems like such a big task, but it starts with one person at a time, as Heidi Baker so helpfully says, the person in front of you. That's where it starts. Your neighborhood, your work colleagues. It starts with ministries and projects that we start in our local communities. That's where it starts. But I don't want us to get confined into small thinking because there's a much bigger vision too. We're called to change cities and disciple nations. I don't even understand what that means or how we're ever going to do it, but I know that's what God has called us to do. But it can only be possible for a people that will serve God wholeheartedly and and who are given to him wholeheartedly And have made mammon their servant, not their master. Amen.